Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 129th edition. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thanks for tuning in. On the broadcast today, I'm going to be sharing an interview that I recorded in Berlin with Hussam Al-Hamalawi, who is an Egyptian media maker, writer, photographer, and activist. Hussam has been deeply involved in Egyptian social movements and organizing on the left for many decades, going back to the workers' strikes in Mahala, Egypt, that led up to the revolution that overthrew Hosni Mubarak during the Egyptian uprising. Hossam continued his involvement in social movements over the years in Egypt and eventually had to leave due to the repression of the current government of al-Sisi, the president of Egypt and former military general. I think this conversation is really important to listen to because it provides some context and background for understanding what's currently happening in Egypt today. This is 2022, and it's 10 years after the revolution. Looking at the ways that the situation has evolved and also the ways that the state has systematically repressed many progressive social activists. Here's our conversation. Okay, so we're in Berlin. We're quite far from the city center, but it's a beautiful setting. There's an old church. I believe there's an organ rehearsal going on and a church bell is, is beginning our conversation. Uh, Hossam, you've been involved in Egyptian social movements for many years, decades in fact, and we're meeting here in Berlin. Uh, this has become a center for a diaspora of Egyptian activists of many different um, orientations politically. Um, maybe if you could just introduce yourself and share a bit um, about your presence here in Germany and uh, a bit about your work. Uh, my name is uh, Hossam Al-Hamalawi. Uh, I'm an Egyptian uh, journalist and uh, I'm also an activist with the uh, Egyptian Revolutionary Socialists. Uh, I've been active with the movement uh, since the late 1990s. Um, I am proud to uh, belong to the generation that basically rebuilt uh, the left on the campuses after its complete demise. and uh, since then, I had uh, been active in the labor movement um, and labor organizing. And uh, I'm also a photojournalist who helped to document the Egyptian uprising, as well as documenting the, um, the rising uh, um, uh, social protests uh, in the run-up to the revolution. Um, I left Egypt uh, by the end of 2015. Uh, two years uh, after the coup and um, initially I went to Doha in Qatar to work for uh, Asia Plus for uh, two years and then I Al Jazeera Plus yeah Um, yeah sure (laughs) and uh, then I relocated or I uh, I moved uh, to Berlin where uh, I am currently residing and uh, I'm doing my uh, PhD on the uh, Egyptian security services and the role in the counter-revolution. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, I cannot go back home uh, at this point. Um, When I left Egypt uh, by the end of 2015, I left it because I was simply waiting for my turn um, uh, to come. 
and uh, I'm wanted by the security services uh, who targeted my family after I left and they made it clear that uh, I am uh, wanted. Um, and maybe this would be like an introduction to talk about the situation in, in Egypt uh, at the moment. To cut a long story short, I mean, the situation is miserable. It's, it's very bad. Um, when counter-revolutions uh, prevail, they don't restore simply the old order. Uh, they, because the old order had failed and led to the uprising. So the kind of regimes that are produced by counter-revolutions in general, I mean, not just in Egypt, they tend to be much more repressive, they tend to be much more um, vicious, um, their appetite for uh, blood is, um, is quite high. Um, so at this point in Egypt, uh, basically everything that we had worked on building uh, in the run-up to the revolution and during the revolution had collapsed. Uh, the independent unions have been um, either decimated or um, have been put under control. Um, the industrial actions uh, plummeted already soon after the coup. Strike the strike actions, yeah. Um, we still get social protests every now and then, but um, on the one hand they are defensive social protests, not offensive meaning before the revolution or in the run-up to the revolution, you had the working class going on the offense, uh, demanding the rights, uh, building uh, independent unions, uh, getting more politicized, getting more generalized view of, of their actions that goes beyond or that went beyond uh, their locality. Um, during the uprising, the workers played basically uh, a central role in, in bringing down Mubarak via their mass strikes in the last week of the 18-year, uh, sorry, the 18-day uprising. Mm. Uh, following that, you know, the strike actions, you know, I mean, continued, the independent unions continued. Um, there were fights on, on all fronts, but they were on the offense. Right now, um, they are on the defense, meaning the kind of actions you get are actions of workers who are trying to basically salvage their factory from being liqui uh, liquidated, um, uh, workers who are trying to go on, on strike action to uh, prevent the mass sacking uh, uh, and the, the firing of, of uh, workers and employees. Uh, you have workers trying to defend their wages from being drastically cut. And on occasions, you have workers who are going on strike basically to, to protect the right to survive because industrial action, uh, sorry, industrial safety is so bad that, that Egypt is one of the most dangerous places in the world to, to basically work. Uh, uh, you do get, on the other hand, some anti-gentrification uh, fights um, uh, related to housing uh, because 
the the regime is going on these mass uh, evictions uh, everywhere, uh, but but mainly in Cairo, where um, the urban poor uh, squatter settlements are being uh, eradicated, uh, the land gets uh, sold afterwards to uh, investors, foreign investors, especially from the Gulf. Um, and uh, houses are being demolished left and right in order to create these massive bridges and roads that lead to the new capital that Sisi is building. And if you look at the plans for this capital, it, it corresponds to some of the worst dystopian cyberpunk sci-fi fiction that you can read. Um, it's um, it's uh, it 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 will be a gated uh, city, uh, smart, quote uh, unquote, where um, according to the major general who's uh, in charge basically of the project, uh, there will be over twenty eight thousand CCTV cameras uh, all over its streets, mass surveillance. So the government's actually constructing just for people who aren't familiar the government's constructing a new capital which is sort of this dreamscape of authoritarianism of cc yes it's they they have become so paranoid of of popular unrest after they had seen a glimpse of what could happen to them uh, throughout the uprising so what is guiding now the regime, I mean, the philosophy of the regime is how to make sure that this fiasco that happened in 2011 does not happen again. Uh, so this is built into uh, the architecture, this is built into the urban planning, this is built into the uh, public security uh, and food security, everything that you can imagine. That's that's like the component that's driving it. Which is also helped by the fact that the army is... Um, the Egyptian army, just in case your listeners don't uh, know, um, increasingly from the 1980s, um, and especially after the 1990s with the start of the neoliberal transition, the Egyptian army has become a player in the civilian economic sector. This was uh, part of uh, the so-called strategy of coup-proofing uh, by the regime, whereby uh, Mubarak was making sure that the top senior brass are co-opted, uh, showered with material incentives, and they are given their economic enclave where they can basically make money. So the Egyptian army before 2011 was making pasta, was, was making cheese, dairy products. Uh, they were building hotels, uh, sports clubs. So they were there. But after 2013, specifically after the coup, the Egyptian army ha- is, has adopted this predatory uh, uh, economic behavior where they are encroaching into the civilian sphere basically everywhere uh, sometimes even to the dismay of big business in Egypt this is uh, interesting actually 
for example, the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian Rockefeller, you know, our uh, Rockefeller Nagib Sawiris, on several occasions since 2014, have been voicing concerns that you know that the army is encroaching into sectors that maybe they shouldn't be encroaching into. But at the same time, other than you know the the very clear, straightforward answer of like you know the army trying to enrich itself, there is also a militarization aspect to it, uh, or a surveillance aspect to it. I think people might not be super familiar with the idea that there's all these shell companies that the Egyptian army, both pre- before the revolution, as you mentioned, had set up for profit making, but also for a political social involvement in different spheres of, of social and political life. And that's increased. I mean, it's just a, a very different model. But um, thank you for outlining that. Yeah. And the the aspect that I also want to, I mean, stress about this is that other than being a straightforward, you know, money-making operation, which, I mean, it is at the end of the day, there is also an aspect of control. Uh, Once you start um, pumping all of those officers into all fields of life in Egypt, you know, from bakeries to wedding halls to sports clubs to hotels to anything you can imagine in Egypt now is being run by some retired uh, military officer or active uh, duty officer. You are actually militarizing the whole uh, society. Um, They bring in their worldview, they bring in their, you know, corporate culture. So Egypt is uh, is being run as the perfect camp, you know, which uh, Michel Foucault had uh, spoken about. It is a perfect camp uh, at the moment. The situation on the other fronts is not as, uh, or is, is just as bad. Um, you have roughly 60,000 political prisoners. Um, you have uh, a massive expansion in, in the prison uh, complex in Egypt. Uh, more than 20 prisons have been built since the coup up until now. And the regime is even boosting that they have built the biggest prison in the world. You know, it's among the achievements that, uh, that they have no shame about uh, publicizing. Um, any sort of dissent, whether on the ground or in cyberspace, is targeted immediately. It is a very, very bad situation that... Um, I don't think we had uh, witnessed at any point in in our past, but that's what counter-revolutions do when they prevail. For people hearing this, I would just like to underline, I mean, a lot of people in Canada and also other countries in the U.S. are, are hearing your voice and your description of what's happening in Egypt. The government that is sort of the political infrastructure behind what you're describing has been totally normalized uh, in the West. And just underlining this, just for um, maybe briefly, if you, if you don't mind, Hossam, can you talk about why that's problematic? And also just remind people of the fact that 
this government is normalized in the West that you're describing, which is, of course, related to the military-industrial complex and the militarization of many industries in Egypt that is taking place? Uh, for a very brief period of time after the coup, um, the Egyptian regime did face uh, some uh, uh, some form of sanctions from a few European countries, and and the Americans also um, uh, stopped uh, the military aid briefly. But the regime knows how to play the game because they have been playing it for decades already. Um, okay, yeah. we're sitting in a park. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Um, so what happened is that Sisi took off the military uniform and put on the suit and ran for elections. And of course, when we say ran for elections, you know, we should put that between uh, quotation marks uh, because this happened after some of the it is the biggest massacre in Egypt's modern history, where the government in broad daylight killed more than 1,000 people, or roughly 1,000 people, in, in two squares. Uh, and then this was followed by the massacres of hundreds uh, uh, later in, in protests. So, Sisi in, in March of 2014 declared that he is going to run for the presidency, and he ran in May, and of course he won by a landslide uh, majority. And since now you have elections, and you have him nominally described as the elected president of Egypt, you know, all the Western governments are uh, were back in business uh, with him. So on the one hand, uh, the, the military aid from the U.S. Uh, resumed. Um, most of the European countries lifted the sanctions. Uh, and um, Germany, where I'm staying now, is the biggest arms supplier to, to Egypt. They have sold uh, submarines. They have sold all sorts of weapons uh, amounting to billions and billions of, of, of dollars. Um, the Canadians also enjoy very warm relations uh, with CC. The same goes for the U.S. And even when the scandal came out that he um, that his security services murdered brutally this Italian uh, student in Cairo, uh, Giulio Ruggini, who was a researcher in Egypt, uh, in case your listeners didn't know who was uh, researching uh, independent uh, labor unions and suddenly he disappeared and was his body, his mutilated body was found and it turned out that he died under torture. Um, and in order to silence the Italian government, CC basically goes and he buys arms. He buys even more arms and buys more arms and these arms deals are enough to silence the European conscience. Um, this is what European values are all about at the end of the day. Uh, the same went with France. Um, the French also are very close partners with Sisi. And the French military is involved in policing uh, our western borders with Libya. 
which had involved the extrajudicial killings of civilians that happened there under the guise of the war on terror and the war on smuggling and counter-narcotics and what have you. And there were several investigative uh, uh, reports that came out in the last years to basically expose uh, this operation. Um, this regime um, plays always on two cards that Sisi understands that what the Europeans are all about at the end of the day. The first card is the war on terror, that, you know, I'm fighting ISIS, I am like your first line of defense against Islamist extremists and what have you. And this is the same card that Mubarak had been also playing. The second one is that uh, I am protecting you from those uh, illegal migrants, uh, those uh, brown and black people who, if, if, if you don't support me, you know, I will flood your southern shores with boats, you know, I mean, coming from Egypt and elsewhere um, with those, you know, migrants that, uh, that you don't like. Um, and if you revise any or if you review and, and look at uh, most of the joint press conferences that Sisi holds with Western leaders in general, you will find that they are showering him with praise over these two specific issues, the war on terror and the war on the so-called illegal migration. But they have to understand those governments that if it wasn't for them that the repression in Egypt could not have reached that level. Um, first is that they are providing Sisi with the political capital to continue ruling. Number two is that they are providing him on occasions with the, uh, with the technology and, and the arms through which he can enforce his brutal regime on, on Egyptian daily lives. So, I, but at the same time, I, I understand that these are, I mean, capitalist regimes at the end of the day. Even, even when they raise banners of human rights and what have you, that whatever human rights uh, that exist in these countries are the product of generations of struggles by the locals in, in those countries. And secondly, if they adopt a, f an, a foreign policy that's more ethical or as ethical as we would love to see, it would only be the product of domestic pressure in, in those countries, not because the politicians and the officials are, uh, are enlightened or, you know, I mean, some revolutionary Democrats or what have you. To be honest, um, I, I, I arrived here in Germany on the 1st of December 2017. And initially, um, I was invited to meetings with parliamentarians here from the left uh, in order to give them presentations about the situation of human rights in Egypt and, and, and try to lobby, you know, for some foreign policy changes. But I've, I've stopped going to these meetings and, you know, I, I don't really, um, I'm not really bothered about attending them any longer because there is nothing <laughs> exclusive that I can give them that they won't find by a Google search on the situation of human rights in Egypt. It's obvious. It's very obvious. And 
what's not obvious, you know, they can just find it in few seconds with a Google search. It's not like I have, you know, some secret, secret yeah. you know, I mean, information that I would divulge yeah. uh, to them. And those who are in charge of the foreign policy, they know the situation in yeah. Egypt, yeah. but they will never change their position. Exactly, they are choosing it because at the end of the day, they are just looking at their own uh, uh, capitalist interests. Uh, so it is up to the German activists and the Western activists in their countries. And these are our true allies. I mean, I am, uh, uh, I'm not one of those people who, uh, who lump everyone, you know, with their own uh, governments. I'm an internationalist. I believe that we do have allies in, in all over the world, but these allies are not in office. They are the ones in independent unions, they are journalists like yourself, they are activists, they are artists, they are civil society actors, you know, these, these are our true allies. And they should be the ones lobbying their elected officials into stopping the sponsorship of the Egyptian regime. Hossam, thank you so much. No, thank you. That was a conversation with Hossam Al-Hamilawi, an Egyptian photographer, activist, and a media maker. He currently resides in Berlin, as you heard, and that was part of a series of interviews that I recorded in Berlin this summer. Thank you so much to Hossam for being on the program. Free City Radio broadcasts every Wednesday on CKUT 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. That's in Geogiage, Montreal also in the city on CGLO 1690 AM on Tuesdays at 1 PM. We broadcast in Winnipeg on CKUW 95.9 FM on Tuesdays at 8 AM and on CFRC in Kingston, Ontario on Wednesdays at 11.30. That's at 101.9 FM. And now we will be broadcasting in Victoria on 101.9 FM. That's CFUV. If you would like to listen to our archives, you can visit uh, soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. We also are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend and you can subscribe, give us a review. It'd be super appreciated. I'll finish the program with some music today from Anthony Sahoon, and I'll be back next week. Thanks again to Hossam for being on the program. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>